that many of you needed that energetic song service to help you shake off the effects of Easter Sunday dinner. Because some of you had good Easter Sunday dinner. Sister Rachel, I know, is one of those Easter Sunday dinner people. I hear some of you shared in their table. I got a box of lemon heads. But that's because she knows that I am an extremely focused pastor and I don't mess around on Sundays. So thank you for not asking me because I would have told you, no, I'm not coming to dinner. Did I? Did you ask me last year? See, you didn't know better. So now you didn't ask me again, and that's good because I like to stay focused on Sundays. Now, I do get enough food out of Rachel all kinds of other times. Trust me. I eat at her house probably next to my, my house and my in-laws the most. And uh, so we're glad to have you. I want to give a shout-out, too, and I'll probably do it again. But thank you to those of you, both greeters and, uh, and then also Sister Leela and Erica and Kiara for attendance-taking today. You had, a, you had a, a big job today. And what most of you don't know as you headed off to your dinners or family or so forth is that these three ladies in particular labored on well, I don't know how long they labored on because I was gone and they were still laboring on. And uh, they were one thirty. Is that what it was, Erica? All right. And uh, thank you to, bo- to all three of you for your faithfulness in that. The importance of that attendance is not how many were here today, though we're thankful for the 209, I guess it was, that were here this morning. We're thankful for that. But the importance is actually not that. It's the ability for us to the best of our ability and the extent of our ability to have captured names so that when God draws back a person, we can then respond and sometimes even cheat using our church management software and call them by name. And that's important because it lets them know that we care. And, uh, and so I just want to kind of acknowledge the labor alongside of me. I'm not the only one that's focused on Sabbath or excuse me, on Easter Sunday, uh, and so I thank these three ladies in particular, and uh, we're thankful. Monique, good to see you. Did Pastor Seth have one of his few times he gave you off on Sunday nights, and Monique's here to worship with us. Welcome, as always. Glad to have you. Amen, amen. Well, I'm in part six, got one more part next week of Letters to Leaders, and I hope that you've enjoyed this kind of a, uh, a topical hop, skip, and a jump around the three letters that Paul wrote to his two sons in the Lord, two of them to Timothy, one of them uh, to Titus. And so tonight I want to draw our attention into the second letter that he writes, and you're going to see a theme. You're going to pick up on it again, what we started with, of Paul's concern that right teaching and good teaching occur. You'll see that in the second second letter and specifically uh, in chapter 2. Now let me let me give myself a little bit of a timer. Um because we don't want to miss Sister Rachel. She's bound to have something engaging tonight. I don't know what it is, but we'll see what happens. She's always up to something. I don't know either. So, I, yeah, we just, we're just going to have to see what happens with it. So let me, let, me get, let me get the main course out of the way, and then here comes lots of exciting things. Um, so 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm just going to kind of jump in. Uh, and, and focus our attention on this chapter, but draw your attention to a couple of parts of it. So Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. Okay, so our strength comes 
through the grace of God. And then he turns again to this topic that is, I, I really didn't even realize as much as I've read the Bible, and I didn't realize how very focused, particularly the first, the two epistles of Timothy are upon teaching over and over and over and over. No matter where I hop to, Paul is talking about some aspect of teaching, okay? And so he says, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. And this is generational transfer. This is about being able to have the church um, be able to operate across time and across generations. If everything resides in me and is never passed on to another, if everything resides in us and is never passed on to another, then the church exists for today, but it will not be here tomorrow. And so Paul is concerned with that, and he says, so, so you, Timothy, you've heard me teach things, and you've heard me teach things that are confirmed by many reliable witnesses, and now you need to teach these same truths to trustworthy people who themselves will be able to pass it on to other trustworthy people. And so there is a multi-generation plan here that I think is still relevant to us today. And, and all of that sounds good. In fact, I usually use that verse. I pull that verse out. I've preached on that. I've used that. But then the very next verse, I'm not so excited about. Go ahead, A.V., put it up. Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Yuck. I'm glad you're excited about it, but I'm not. Endure suffering. I don't know about you, but American Christianity has struggled because we have the idea that if we serve God, life gets better. And by the way, sometimes it does. But what if it doesn't? What if it gets worse? What if it costs you something to serve God? Now, one of the things that, that churches struggle with, and there's a balance in this, but churches struggle with is, is uh, when, when pastors know that there's a, there's a dip in attendance on a service, sometimes they get the idea that, well, what's the point of the service? I don't know about you, but when I get invited to a banquet of 200 people or 1,000 people or 500 people versus I get invited to a meal of six, I know which one's more important and which one's more special. It's not the banquet of 1,000. I'm simply one among many. And so I come to tonight not looking at, because I, I know Easter will dip. I know that we will have folks that have other commitments or places that they are, some legit and some not so legit. They have to determine that. That's their call. I don't run everybody's life. I got enough of a problem running my own. So this one's kind of a, 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 a tough sermon in one sense, a tough topic to look at, and yet it's important for you as leaders to understand that leadership costs suffering. It costs suffering. I know we see a lot of things about leading we could think, Timothy, wow, the guy that gets to walk with the Apostle Paul, wouldn't that be awesome? No, it cost him something. Wouldn't it be amazing to be the son in the Lord to the Apostle Paul who studied himself with Gamaliel? And we're thinking CV and resume. No, it cost him something. It cost the Apostle Paul something, and the Apostle Paul reminded Timothy 
It's going to cost you something. And it's not something you're going to overcome. You're going to endure. Do you know what the word endure means? It means it's ongoing. It's not conquer it. It's not overcome it. It's endure it. It's present with you. It is par for the course. It is part of being, and Paul picks up this motif, this imagery of being a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he picks these themes up and he, and he plays them out. So verse 4, he says, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And then he gives you another image. And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. And then he gives you another Number six, or verse six, and hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. And then Paul seems to acknowledge that this might be hard to understand because he says in verse number seven, think about what I am saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. So whether you're thinking of a farmer, now I, I am not a farmer. I know nothing about farming, but I did marry me an Oki. She knows nothing about farming either. She was a city girl, okay? But her mama knows something about farming, and her Aunt Joan definitely knows something about farming because she and her family are farmers. They own a farm, like a real bona fide big-time farm. And nowadays, it's a pretty high-tech farm. They got some machinery that's worth multiple times over what my house is worth, just one piece of machinery, okay? So they understand about farming, the costs of farming. There are... Days where it didn't matter what was going on the night before at the crack of dawn. Chris Ledbetter, maybe he's retired now. Maybe he's backed off. Is he still going at it, still cracking at it? Chris Ledbetter's up and at it. Rachel understands something about farming. Her daddy was a farmer. I don't know anything about a farmer, but what I do know is it takes commitment. An athlete. Some of you were born with some stinking ability. You pick up some sports equipment and you can play it. But if you want to be great, you got to work it. You got to say no to certain things. You got to hone your skills according to some parameters and some structures. And soldiers, there's a reason that they put them through boot camp and put them through all kinds of things to screen them, is because there is suffering. In every one of those cases, there is a cost, and it's not a small one. So Paul uses these images, the image of a soldier, the image of, a, of, a, of an athlete, and the image of a farmer to basically tell Timothy, Timothy, you've got to endure suffering with me. This leadership thing requires suffering. Verse 8, he says, always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. We celebrate that today, Amen. And he goes on, he says, this is the good news I preach. This is the good news. And Paul does this in the book of Acts. He stands before the Sanhedrin and says, I stand before them for the question of the resurrection of the dead. Okay? And so we celebrate that today. And he goes on, he says, and because I preach this good news, I am suffering. Oh, I thought I was supposed to get riches and fame. I thought everybody was going to love what I had to say. I thought I was going to have a huge church. I thought I was going to have people fall down at my feet. I thought that I was going to have a jet because that's what God destined for me, right? Sounds good to me. I'd love to have a jet that I could travel, do my missions work and things and not have to be messing around with airlines that don't know what they're doing. 
But see, that's not what the Apostle Paul said. He says, I have this good news about Jesus. He rose from the dead, and I preach this good news, and because I preach this good news, I am suffering. I've been chained like a criminal. But the Word of God cannot be chained. And we like to focus on the Word of God cannot be chained. Guess what? It can't be. But it will usually be set loose by your suffering. Ooh, I don't like this. Some of you are going to say, I'm going to stay home and have my Easter dinner late next year. It's important for us as leaders to understand what we're in for, what we're signing up for. No, the Word of God cannot be chained, but we can be. And God lets us deal with suffering. He lets hardship come upon us because somewhere in the economy of defeating sin, him allowing us to suffer and yet succeed despite the suffering, enduring the suffering, is a part of his witness. Now, my personal opinion is part of the reason is it's because the whole world is suffering. They're not going to understand us if life is good all the time. But they need to see that Christ changes the dynamic when they're suffering just like they have. But we handle it somehow differently. We endure it with a different tone. We handle it in a different manner. Now here, verse 10, Paul says, So I am willing to endure anything. Woo. I just want you to sit and resonate on that for just a minute. He says, I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. Now, here's the stinky part about this. You can't know who God has chosen. When you are leading, you can't know who God has chosen. You cannot do a demographic uh, detailed uh, analysis and pick out who God has chosen. No, that's not how that works. <laughs> I won't pick on anybody here tonight, but I'm telling you, there's some of you sitting here that we, if we were doing a demographic detailed analysis, we would have said you weren't going to be on it. Okay? No, so we have to be willing to suffer anything. That's what Paul sets as an example to his son of the Lord. He says, Timothy, I'm willing to suffer anything as long as it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. And then he backs it up. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. So he takes the suffering all the way to the worst point. I have long maintained, I don't know whether I will do well when I'm put under the absolute ultimate test, but I have long maintained that the scariest people in the world should be Christians because we should not fear the one thing that everyone else fears, and that is death. Because the moment that I die, I am with Christ, and I will rise again. Now, for me, the part I'm a little worried about and trusting God to be faithful to me in is the suffering between the point when I've lost my freedom and before I finally leave this world. You know, how bad is it going to be? What are they going to do to me? What's it going to be? Is it going to be sickness? Is it going to be Boko Haram with a knife? Is it going to be, you know, a plane crash? What is it going to be? But the reality is, is if we die, we're also going to live again with him. 
So the ultimate end of suffering, suffering taken to its worst extent, simply leads to living again. And Paul pushes this, and and if you don't think it relates to the hardship, look at verse 12. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Timothy, remind everyone, verse 14, about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. So here Paul has not lost sight of the teaching. He's not lost sight in his concern that right teaching come forth. Leadership is about teaching. Some of you think, well, I'm, I, I can't stand behind a pulpit. You are missing the point. Teaching happens in more places than the pulpit. How did each of you learn to speak? From a parent who taught you. There's no certifications. There's no continuing education. There's no advanced degrees. It doesn't matter who the parent is. Every child learns to communicate by means of a parent who models it for them. And we do it in various ways, and, but we teach them how to speak. They grunt and groan and cry, and we try to guess. You know, talk about asking questions. We ask questions of this imbecile little baby that can't use words yet to try to figure it out. And, and, and then by process of elimination, we figure it out. And then we, ad nauseum, almost instinctively, we start repeating the words. Milk. Oh, you wanted milk. Oh, that's what you wanted. You wanted milk. All right, mommy's getting you some milk. Daddy's getting you some milk. That's good. Oh, is that good milk? You like that milk? Come on, think about it. It's what happens. And slowly but surely across days and weeks, somewhere that little booger gets into its head, that white stuff that tastes good, milk, and they can't say it right. They can't form their tongue, but they learn. It's called modeling. The most powerful teaching is that which is modeling. So the Apostle Paul says, look, it's not just what you're standing behind a pulpit, and they didn't even have pulpits in Timothy's day. That's not what they were dealing with. But as they're standing there in modeling, every one of us is modeling. If you're a leader within the church, you are modeling to other people. See, well, I'm not on the schedule. I don't matter. People are watching you. They are. They're watching your face. They're watching your attitude. They're watching your fights with your wife. They're watching your fights with your husband. They're watching you discipline your children. They're watching whether you're paying any attention to anybody else or whether it's all about you. They're watching. They will see you just as our children learn from us. And isn't it embarrassing when they learn something they shouldn't learn? Woo, Jesus, have mercy. We're real upset when that happens. It's like, where'd you learn to do that from you, Daddy? Oh, that's that's a problem, isn't it? Where did you learn to talk like that? Or where did you learn to act like that? Well, I heard you do it, Mommy. Well, that was different. It was me and Daddy. No, it isn't different. They will constantly be learning. We are teaching in more than just a pulpit. We are constantly teaching with our life, a life that is subject to hardship. And we're teaching other Christians how do you act in times of hardship. And so Paul, as he's done in several other places across this series that we've looked at, he says, don't spend time with these these myths. Don't spend time with these fables. Don't spend time with these words and genealogies. 
Don't fight about this. Then he turns to Timothy in verse 15. He says, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. The word of truth does need explaining. It is not self-explanatory. You don't have babies come to the Lord and you just flop them their Bible and say, go read. No, it has to be explained. But it's explained in more than just words. It's also explained in our life. It's explained in how we live. And this is the hard part. Because it's easy to segregate. Well, here... I better have it together. For instance, if I asked one of you, I said, look, I feel in the Lord that you're supposed to teach Sunday night. You would pay attention to your shoes. You'd make sure your pant or your dress was appropriate. You'd make sure your hair was done right. I mean, you would pay attention to it. Do you pay that much attention when you come to church? Do you pay that much attention when you show up at the potluck? Do you pay that much attention when you're not in the front? There should be a consistency. There should be a consistency between the public and the private. There should be a consistency between on stage and off stage. <laughs> now, some of you wonder why I act so crazy up here, because I want to be able to act crazy out there. There's a consistency to who I am. And if anything that Stephen Beardsley is, he's consistent. That's what he is. I am what I am, all right? I may need to do better on something, but I am what I am. Because this world knows hypocrisy. It's full of it. This context, I'll do this. This context, I'll do that. Who are you? Then I'll deal with you a certain way. Oh, you're another person. Then I'll deal with you another way. Mm -mm. James warns us of that both with poverty and other things. He said, don't be doing that. It's not how it should be happening. See, we got to understand that as leaders, we are constantly teaching. Not just with our words, but with our life. Yes, we need to be able to explain the word of truth, but we got to be careful in our conversations too. Verse 16, he says, avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. There's some talk that just doesn't need to happen. And I'm, by the way, I'm not here to correct anything, but I'm just looking at you. As leaders, there's some talk that just doesn't need to happen. And when somebody starts talking in a way that doesn't need to happen, teach them by not engaging it. Don't be snotty about it. Don't be unkind, but teach them. It's amazing to me how many of these kinds of conversations never come to me. You know why they never come to me? Because everybody figures out that it's not going to go well when they come to me. If they're comfortable coming to you, that's on you. Change the dynamic. And I'm not talking about being rude. I'm not talking about being unapproachable. But I am talking about understanding the importance of your lifestyle. Verse 17, he says, this kind of talk spreads like cancer, as in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, they have turned some people away from the faith. But God's truth, verse 19, stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his and all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. Our, our language, our speech, 
what we're focused on are all mechanisms for teaching. Now, Paul, we already know, is writing to a young man. He tells him, do not despise your youth. Don't allow others to despise your youth. But I would argue to you that we all struggle with being distracted. Leaders have to develop the ability to stay focused. Do you know why there's some conversations I'm not engaging in? It's because it's not on point. It doesn't matter. If you're going to be a leader in this congregation, you have to be able to figure out how to take the high road. Period. You have to endure hardship. Well, I have never been so embarrassed in all of my life. Okay. Figure it out. Figure out how to be the bigger person. Figure, figure out how to rise above it. Well, you don't understand my background, Pastor Stephen. You don't understand all the hurt that I have. Great. Figure it out anyway. Because then when you share your hurt, when you share your past, whether personally or publicly, and people still see you rise above it, it calls them to also, by the power of the Spirit, rise above that which is meant to define you. God does not want you defined by that which was done wrong to you. He wants you to be defined by his act at Calvary. All power is in his hands, and you have that power. You are his son or his daughter. I'm not telling you that I do not understand the feeling of the words of a father or a mother or a community or a family that have defined you or hurt you, but hear me, dear leader. God has called you to rise above it. He has called you by the power of his spirit to not be defined by others' words, but to be exclusively and totally defined by his words, his love, his care, his kindness. Now, for sake of time, because I do want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm being cognizant of the time. Uh, A.V., I'm sorry I gave you everything, but let me, let me drop down to verse number, verse number 23. If you can go and find that, I apologize. Oh, Sister Wendy's up there. Doing all right up there, Wendy? Legs a-dangling? Oops, that was foolish conversation. I better behave myself. No, actually, that was a little bit of relationship there with Sister Wendy. I love her dearly. You will have to learn something about me. The more I love you, the more I hassle you. Sorry. It is a bad habit of mine. Verse 23, again I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel. I got to dwell here for a minute. Man, I didn't know I was going here tonight. The Lord kind of, the Lord kind of sandbagged me a little bit. I knew where I was going, but I didn't know I was going quite here. Okay. We gussy up quarreling. If the other person offended us, if the other person hurt us, if the other person did X, Y, well, then I have a right. I'm a truth speaker. And by the way, hey, everybody that's a truth speaker, there ain't nobody here more of a truth speaker than Stephen James Beardsley, Okay. Many a person from very different backgrounds that says, Steve, you need some tact. You need some wisdom. My father-in-law says it to me all the time. He'll say to me, why don't you tell me what you really think? 
And half the time I look at him and go, I just did. And didn't even catch that he was trying to tell me, tone it off a little bit. That is not an excuse to be quarrelsome. Now, I'm not talking about vigorous debate. I'm not talking about loving the truth. I'm not talking about defending the truth. But there is not a place for being quarrelsome. There must be kindness within a leader. You must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. I don't know how many times I've heard leaders go, I can do it, but this one is just too much. No, those are the ones that you test your metal on. All the nice people, of course you can teach them. Of course you can lead them. No, it's the difficult people. It's the people like me. That sets the measure of your leadership. And I'm not talking about me as a leader. I'm talking about where I'm the follower. How well do you deal with difficult people? How kind can you be? How gentle can you be even while you continue to teach, whether by word or by deed? Um, this is suffering. I'm not telling you this is all that the suffering that Paul's talking about, but this is suffering. I don't know. I never went to Bible school. Rachel and Desi, uh, did they teach you this in Bible school? When you get your pastorate, you are going to need to suffer with the people. Did they? Good. I'm glad they did. Well, they got a problem with submission. Well, of course they do. So what are you going to teach them? Are you going to submit to them? I'm not talking about submitting the truth. I'm talking about your spirit. I'm talking about your attitude. I know over the last few years as Leela has stepped up alongside of me, there have been moments, we won't say when or who, when she wanted to clean one of your clocks. And I would pick up on it. And she was very disciplined. I don't think she did anything wrong towards one of you. If she did, you come and make it right with her. But I'd pick up on it. I could tell she had her knickers in a wad about it. I could tell she was upset. And I'd go, Lil, you can't go. I know, Steve, but you're not. And she'd just give me the what for. And I'd sit there. And kindly and gently but firmly say, you cannot go there. You must rise above it. You must be the bigger person. You must do better. So you got to understand when I occasionally, half joking, half not, look at you and go, the moment God releases me from pastoring you, I'm out of here. Some of you look at me like, Wow, that's kind of rude. It ain't always fun pastoring you. There's some suffering involved. There's some hardship involved. You all are not always reasonable. You say, well, you're not either. I understand that. But we're not talking about you. We're talking about me. It's, we're talking about my suffering. We're talking about my hardship. 
But aren't you glad I don't get in this pulpit and go into a tirade on you? Aren't you glad I don't call you in the office and rip you up one side and down the other? Even with true speaking, multiple people in multiple ways will say, but Steve, you're kind. It's good. When I hear that, it makes me feel better because kindness, the ability to have compassion, the ability to empathize, even when somebody's being stupid, even when someone's being cruel, to get, to get beyond their actions and to get to where they are and their hurt and their pain because it cannot be about you. Because Paul tells us in verses 25 and 26, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change. God will change. You're not going to change, but God will change those people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Now, I know you're not, you're not going to like this when I tell you this, but even after you've received the Holy Ghost, the devil still has reins on you. And it's your past. It's my past. He has the ability to tug at us and affect us. We need people who are gentle around us, who will call us up from our past to our future. We need people who do not condemn, but at the same time do not affirm, who are kind and gentle and patient as they instruct both through the spoken word, but also through how we live. Since I already used Sister Leela, let me continue down that track. When I would get after her about something, at the end, I didn't look at her and say, I can't believe you're, you're struggling with this. I can't believe that you're doing this. I can't believe that you're this or that. Every single time, once I got her to listen to me, and that sometimes is a hard thing to do, because we don't want to listen. Anybody that's ever taught knows people who you're teaching don't always want to listen. So you have to find a way, kindly and gently, to get you to listen. We all have that problem. Once I knew she had heard me, I'd say, I know you can do this. I believe in you. We need to speak and we need to demonstrate into the lives of people who look to us for leadership that they also, through the power of the Spirit, can do it. Don't fall to the lowest common denominator. Call them up. There are going to be people who will oppose you. Win them anyway. There are going to be people who don't agree with you. Leadership is not about getting ahead of wherever the crowd's going. I know I hear leaders joke about that. I'm sorry. That's not leading. Figuring out where the crowd's going and then running ahead and acting like you're leading it, that ain't leading. That's manipulative following. No, leading is knowing where it's supposed to be, knowing how you're supposed to live, knowing where we need to go, and then gently and kindly, whether by modeling or by word, teaching the truth. I summed this whole thing and my thoughts and reflections as I close in chapter 2 to this. Leadership involves suffering and hardship, coupled with kind 
patient and gentle teaching. Leadership cannot be about the leader. But it has to be about God's mission to change people's hearts, even the difficult people. This can't be about me, and it can't be about you. The few times, and as I'm closing, musicians, if you would come, we move into our second set of songs. And Leadership requires an even greater level of discipleship. And Jesus said, if you are to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The reason I can be kind and gentle, the reason you can be kind and gentle and patient is because you deny yourself. And when you deny yourself what's left, if it's not about you, who's left? The person and God. That's what's left. It's not your concerns. It's not your pride. It's not your needs. You trust the Heavenly Father to care for you. When you deny self, now it's God and those people, and they take precedence over where things are going. And that's where the kindness and the gentleness and the patience come. Their needs take the front and center. Their needs are what orient how you're going. I joke with my kids. I can't wait till they grow up and move on. You know why? Because it's exhausting teaching them. My life for 20 years now has been oriented around children. What's even more pernicious is when you've taught them and then they play back to you your words and tell you you're not living up to them. What are you going to do, leader? Because you're not perfect and neither am I. When someone you taught plays back to you your words and calls you into accountability, you're going to puff up? You're going to take on pride? You're going to defend self? You're going to take your power and authority and squash them? Or are you going to humble yourself? Submit yourself to truth. Remember, truth bows to no one. We all bow to truth. Every single person bows to truth. You see, right teaching is what's going to get us to heaven. But the teaching is not just occurring across this pulpit. It's occurring in our leadership. It's occurring in our lifestyle. It's occurring in our example. And it's hardship. There's suffering tied into that because we don't get our way. And sometimes God even asks us to really suffer, not just by not getting our way, but going through hardship, arrest, wrong accusation, imprisonment, or any number of other things. And God says, will you lead? Will you show the world who I am through you? Let's stand. We're going to sing together and uh, offer.